So one of my favorite parts of going to seminary was just being around the professors. All of them were really good. Uh, good professors teach the truth in a clear way that you can understand. But there were a few, two, maybe three, who were great. And great professors make you want to live the truth. Uh, they had a gravitational pull about them, just like great leaders of any kind. So if you're waiting on class and one of the great professors is in a class, you'll kind of gravitate towards that classroom. Not quite put your ear up against the door or on the wall, but uh, you'd hope that the students around you, your fellow classmates, are quiet so you can catch more. Or if you're walking down the hallway and they're engaged in some discussion, you might slow down and just kind of have your head on a swivel because the gravitational pull just pulls you in. Um, and while I was going through seminary, I was also an intern at our sending church, River Community Church, is the church that raised us up and really sent us out on mission. That's why we're here today. Um, and as I was around the leadership of River, they had the same gravitational pull, and I'd, I'd wonder to myself sometimes, how do these guys, how are they so sure? How are they so confident? What is it that makes this pull about them and their lives and their leadership. And I realized, well, it's not arrogance because they're not making it about them. They're not acting like they're always right. And though time is probably a component to what has developed and the leadership that they've developed, it's also not just time because I've met a lot of other guys their age who have walked with God and they don't have that. They don't have that, that gravitational pull, that influence. And it's definitely not information, even though both the professors and the leaders at River uh, are very knowledgeable. It's not information, because if it was information, they gladly would have handed it out, you know, and let me know about it so I could let you know about it. It's not information-based. It was, it was their faith. They were sure of what they hoped for. They were certain of what they didn't see. And faith has a way of drawing people in when it's lived out and when it's spoken honestly and personally, that's what separated the great leaders and professors and the leadership at River from just be, merely being good. So I also worked with a guy, in contrast, about eight years ago in, in the summer of one of my college years, I worked with a guy who we got to know each other and we started talking about faith and he just kind of cut off the conversation and said, that's just something I keep between me and God. And while I, you know, didn't hold that same position and I thought for his good, that's not a great position to hold, I just let him be because I realized that nobody is entitled to having your faith shared with me or my faith shared with you. You're not entitled to that. And so I didn't press him, but I did open up my life and I let him in uh, to my faith as much as he was willing uh, to go. And I share that just to say that what you believe matters. And it matters not just to you, it definitely matters to you, but it matters to the people around you. Because your faith impacts your attitude, your outlook, your actions, your words. And we all believe something. Everybody lives by faith in someone. And our normal disposition as sinners is to live by faith in ourselves not in God. So while I say that persuaded people persuade people, that's the title of the message today, I want you to realize that it, we're all persuaded and, it, and it, 
your persuasion comes out in different ways, but it's really the personally persuaded people who personally persuade others that are effective. So that's my assumption is you don't, we're all persuaded, but not all of us articulate our persuasion in a personal way and a powerful way. So what I want to move us towards and encourage you in, because I believe God is already doing this among us, is to press in to personal and powerful persuasion and living lives that where you're a persuaded person who persuades others. So if you'd like to follow along, um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, beginning in verse 11. Uh, the words will be on the screen now, but not all of the future slides have all of them. And if you're like me, I just like to have a reference point. Uh, anything that I say that's worth keeping or remembering comes from this passage today. So uh, I pray that if I say anything in direct or in, in opposition or unhelpful in any way that you wouldn't remember that. So um, here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what's seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we're going to look at how persuaded people persuade people. And this is God's method. This is how God wants to accomplish his mission of reconciling the world to himself and offering the world this reconciliation reconciliation, this right relationship that's only available through Jesus. So there's four ways, if, if you like to know where we're going and what we're going to be looking at, here's, here's your overview. There's four ways that we can and should be persuaded. Paul shows we can and should be persuaded of who we are, of God's love and power in our lives. We can and should be persuaded of other people's need and of our role. So let's look at the first one. We can and should be persuaded of who we are, verses 11 through 13. Part of understanding what something is or who we are is to kind of contrast who we are and here's who we're not. 
So he starts by saying, we're not God. Therefore, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, he's the one who's going to be judging on the last day. He's the judge. That's the, the verse just prior to verse 11. In verse 10, we're all going to be held account to what we do in this life. And we're not God, so that's who we're not. And so we fear him as God, as our authority, as someone who is higher and more great than we could ever imagine. We fear God. And therefore, he says, we persuade others. So we know who we are by knowing who we're not. We're not God. And although that might be an obvious statement, all of us live and we're tempted to live in some way like we are God, like we can and should control everything. That's what we would like. But accepting who we are is knowing who we're not. We're not God. We're not all knowledgeable, all powerful, all present. But what we are called to be and what we should be persuaded of is who we are. We are known by God. The next verse says, we are, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. So God knows who we really are, and other people can know too. That doesn't mean you have to air all of your laundry on Facebook, but it does mean that other people should know the inner parts of who you are. You should have a circle of trusted friends because God knows you and he wants you to be known by him and by others in community. Paul goes on to say that we're not trying to impress you, we're really trying to bless you. So that's part of who we are and we should be persuaded about who we are. We are, we are here to bless other people, not to impress them. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us and not so that you think we're great, but so that you can answer those who value what's external. Who can you can answer those who value the wrong things and you can show them, actually, this is a lot better way. Value in what's in the heart, that's the way that God designed us to live. And part of who we are is that we're even willing to look foolish in order to obey God. I had a friend about a month ago text me. He was reading this passage. He said, what in the world does it mean when Paul says, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. It's a good question. It's kind of confusing. But I think it simply means that as you move towards obedience, some people will think you're out of your mind because you're not living for yourself. And it, it's just countercultural. And you just have to be okay with that. We're not looking to make people think that we're fools or look foolish. Our primary goal is obedience to God, and we're okay with the results. Because some people will realize, oh, you're in your right mind, and you're doing that for my sake. I, I get to benefit from your obedience to God. And I've seen this in my own life. One of the men uh, who invested in me in college, uh, I thought for a little bit, I was like, man, he's crazy. He just, he gathered people together and did silly things and put together silly games. And I was just like, this dude is crazy. But as I got to know him, it was the, his heart behind all those things that he did that seemed crazy to me as an introvert who really had no motivation to meet people. Uh, all those things that seemed crazy was so he could pursue college students and make, if, 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 everyone, if he's the most uncomfortable person in the room, then everybody else becomes comfortable. And I really admired him for that once I knew his heart. Um, and the, 
And, and this is a guy, too, that when he first moved to Wichita, he wasn't even willing to pray out loud. He was the most uncomfortable guy in the room. The only way you do something like that is being persuaded of who you are in Christ. So that's the first way. We need to be persuaded of who we are. We can be persuaded of that. And then God will use us to be persuasive. And the second way that Paul shows us we can and should be persuaded is of God's love and power. He writes, Christ's love compels us. And remember, this is all in context. So it's compelling us to obedience to God. Even if you think we're a crazy fool for being obedient, it's Christ's love that compels us. And he's saying, here's why. We're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. That's Christ. Jesus died. He's the one that died for all. And then he says all died. So it gets a little confusing again there, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then he, Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. That's God's power, that you don't have to live for yourself anymore if you are in Christ. And you can be persuaded of God's power for you right now. So here's, I think this is probably the most confusing part of the passage because let, let's remember the context. He says, um, if we're out of our mind, it's for God, right? And then he talks about how Christ was the one that died for all. And then what we're going to read next is that we regard no one according to the flesh. So how do those three ideas relate to each other? Is Paul just bouncing around randomly? I don't think so. Um, here's how I see they relate. Is that he's talking about appearances. When we obey, right, some people think we appear foolish. And then he's talking about how we perceive other people. We regard no one according to the flesh. So how Christ's death fits into that is when Jesus died, it looks like he lost. Right? That's the appearance. And the disciples scattered. <laughs> but now we see that what looked like a total loss was the victory of God. Displayed in the resurrection. That he's no longer dead, but he came back to life. So what the disciples probably thought was their greatest shame. We just spent three years of our life following this guy who died on a cross. The most humiliating and agonizing death. That's God's wrath poured out on Jesus for us. And it's the same way for us today as Christians, as Christ followers. The truth of God's power will appear to those who, for those who are spiritually alive and living for Jesus. So even though it doesn't appear that way, even though you don't always feel innocent, in Christ you are innocent. The sins of the, the world really were placed on Christ. And so the, the whole idea that ties these together is uh, things are not as they really seem all the time. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this was a major problem in Corinth. Because if you've been around, you, you've kind of picked up on this theme that the Corinthian believers were following false teachers, uh, super apostles. These guys looked and sounded really good on the outside but they didn't value what was in the heart. And we see this problem in 2 Corinthians 10 and the passage we just read. So let's look at this. 
Paul says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. For it is not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And then the, the verse we just read, we're not trying to commend ourselves, but to give you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who look at what's seen rather than what's in the heart. So to, I'm, I'm going to try to sum it up because I'm afraid I'm being confusing, which is not a good teacher. If you value the wrong things, you're going to be persuaded about the wrong things. If you're persuaded about the wrong things, you're going to persuade others about the wrong things. So Paul is correcting them gently and reminding them, when Jesus died on the cross, it didn't look impressive. It looked humiliating. It was humiliating. But God's wrath was put on him so that we could experience the grace of God. He took our place, just like we sang. And so, now when Paul moves on to talk about how we should and can be persuaded about what other people need the most, he continues this theme of appearances. Verse 16. Now, we don't look at anyone from a worldly point of view. We don't look at anyone according to the flesh. Once we even looked at Christ that way, right? The guy who died on the cross and lost is what it appeared. But he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You don't look any different when you accept Jesus. You might not even feel any different, but you are different. The old is gone, the new has come. So we're persuaded that what we see is not all that there is. We're persuaded that what people need isn't a better life or an easier life. They need a new life. They need the life of Jesus. And it's available because he died in their place and he rose again. They might look the same on the outside, but there's something significantly different about those who follow Jesus on the inside. And that inside difference will work itself out. And this is what the world needs most. This is what we need to be persuaded of, that the world needs Jesus most. And we can and should be absolutely persuaded of that. And that takes us to our final area, our final way in which we can and should be persuaded, and that's our role. If the world needs Christ, then what's our role? Paul basically says that our role as Christians is we are reconciled sinners who offer reconciliation to the world. We are ministers. If you're a Christ follower, he said this earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. If you're a Christ follower, you're a minister. That's what you're called to a minister of reconciliation. And that's a long word, but it basically means making things right. Repairing things that are damaged. Healing to brokenness. So I want to read that passage again, verses 18 through 21. He says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We are reconciled sinners. We still sin, but we are now, our identity is being reconciled. We're made right with God. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we're Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. 
be reconciled to God. That word implore, other translations might use the word beg or plead. It's an emotional word. And I told you at the start of this study, 2 Corinthians is a really emotional book. A lot of joy, a lot of tears. Very emotional book. We implore you, and here's the message, be reconciled to God. So I want to plead with you a little bit today. Uh, especially if you're here, well, first I'll plead with you if you're here and you're not sure about your relationship with God or if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to plead with you now and then I'll plead with those who have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord because Paul is doing both in this passage. So if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, if you're not sure, here's how you can be made right with God. Trust that the perfect one, Jesus, took your sin, took your imperfections on the cross and paid for them totally. God is a, he's a great God. And he's a perfect judge. He cannot let anything go unpunished. And so when he forgives your sins, he's not just sweeping them under the rug, ignoring them. He's putting Jesus in your place. but he did that so that you could live with him both now and forever, so that you could live under his authority, so that you could be a minister of reconciliation. So this illustration is helpful to me. Um, so I, I just like to use a picture instead of more words right now. Um, people on the far, your left, God on the right, and sin, our imperfections, is what separates us from the holy God. There's no one like him. And there's nothing you can do to bridge that gap. No matter how many times you come to church, no matter how much money you give to great causes, no matter how nice of a person you are, no matter what your standards are, they cannot bridge that gap. And that's why God sent himself in the form of Jesus Christ into the world. Only Christ can bring you into a right relationship with God. You have to turn from yourself, turn from living on your own terms, on your own turf, and trust Christ. So if you repent from your sins and trust in Christ, you're going to spend the rest of your earthly life living on that cross, that bridge. And you'll be safe, but you won't feel safe because death will be right under you. <laughs> but you'll be safe. That cross will not fail you. That bridge will not fail you because the only one you'll be relying on for your life now and forever, for your sins past, present, and future being forgiven, and for your direction, all the uncertainty, the only one you'll be relying on is Christ. And that's what you can expect if you're not a Christian today. But I want to I implore you on behalf of Christ. He wants you to hear he wants you. He loves you. This is the most important decision that you or anyone who's not in this room will ever make. His leadership is the best leadership to live under. And you'll live the rest of your life trusting a trustworthy person and experiencing his faithfulness in the midst of all of life. And if you have doubts, if you're not sure, I get that. I don't want to be pushy, but I do want to be persuasive. 
I do want you to know that your life does hang in the balance. And yeah, hell is real. And people who don't turn from their sins and follow Jesus get the punishment that fits the crime. It really does fit the crime. But your life right now hangs in the balance too. Eternal life starts now. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So if you're not sure, voice your doubts, but don't push this off. I want to implore you to deal with it. Deal with it with God and deal with it with other people that you trust. And my final plea with you is why not now? Why not now? The ministry of reconciliation is for the whole world. So that's my plea for the whole world. That's God's plea. Anyone can be forgiven and changed. But this message of reconciliation is also for the church. When Paul says we implore you on Christ's behalf, he's talking to a bunch of believers. We implore you, be reconciled to God. And Paul had already called them believers multiple times earlier in this letter. And he's not questioning their faith and saying, you think you're a Christian, but you're really not. There's other parts of the Bible that speak to that. But he's encouraging them through correction. He's saying, you don't have to do anything to be reconciled, but your judgment, your life, your outlook, you're off base. You need to be reconciled to God. You need to value things that he values, the things that are in the heart. And so confess that, turn to him and be reconciled. You've already been made right with God. Now it's time to live right with God. One of the biggest misconceptions of Christian faith is that Jesus is an insurance policy, eternal life insurance, essentially. So in that picture, Jesus is just the eternal life insurance to make sure you'll never fall into the pit, right? You say the prayer, and then you're covered. Well, yes and no. That's a really dangerous and wrong way to look at relationship with Christ. He is eternal life. So you'll, you will never fall in, but he's not meant to just pull out on the day that you need it. You always need it. Just because you pray to prayer doesn't mean you're a Christian. And Paul talks about receiving the grace of God in vain in the very next verse. I almost included it in this message, but he says, we don't receive the grace of God in vain. And what that means is the grace that we receive, we actually use. The Christian runs on grace like a jet runs on jet fuel. We use it to, to be forgiven, of course, but to spur us on towards righteousness and holy living. And yeah, we fall a lot on that journey, but it's about that direction. Grace propels us in the right direction. So, so one of the biggest misconceptions is that you can be made right with God and then live however you want to. You, that couldn't be further from the truth. Trust is worked out. Real trust is demonstrated. And once you trust Christ, you're going to continue to trust him. Not perfectly, but progressively. You're going to grow in trust, grow in relationship, and you're going to be changed. And so in summary, here's our role. Persuade others while being increasingly persuaded ourselves. Be persuaded and persuade. So here's a model. I have another model for you. It's the same model. I just, I see it throughout 2 Corinthians. So we're going to keep attaching new words 
uh, into this model as Paul uses it. He's saying we fear God, we worship God. God persuades us in our relationship with him. That's the most important relationship. But then out of that relationship flows our relationship to other people in which we persuade them. God is making his appeal through us. And other people will say, some will say no, some will say yes. And no matter what they say, your ministry is going to indirectly persuade you. You're going to be changed, both as you walk with God and walk with people. So you're not just reconciled. It's a beautiful and an awesome truth that God has made us right with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's more than just that. God is using you to bring about reconciliation. You're not just changed, you're changed to bring change. So let's look at some specific applications. Uh, First is be persuaded of your relationship with God. You can know that you have been reconciled. And there's really no reason to doubt because all of our confidence is placed in Christ. And if you do doubt, deal with it. That's part of being persuaded is dealing with doubt. Faith and a life of faith doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. Another application is you can be persuaded that God will use you to reconcile others to him. And you can live like that. You can live in confidence that God is going to use you. Your faith is meant to be shared, both with believers and unbelievers. So find ways to share that. And finally, your faith matters. It impacts your life. It impacts the lives of everyone around you. And you don't have to be a pastor or a seminary professor to be a persuasive person. You just have to be personally persuaded. And you have to have the the personal skills to persuade others. doesn't mean you have to be eloquent with your words. Moses wasn't. You just have to be persuaded in your faith. And everyone's living by faith. So persuaded people persuade people. And God's plan is to use you where you are. You can be persuaded right now. It starts with trust and continues with trust. And that means you can be persuasive right now. The gospel is what we find to be persuasive and that's what we persuade others towards. That God made Christ who was perfect. He knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, I believe that you are in this process of changing us, making us into persuasive people because you're the most persuasive one. Pray you would search us now. Make us aware if we're judging success based on appearances. Pray that we would value what you value, which is faithfulness to you. Use this time to commit to trusting God. Trust that he'll use your faithfulness 
to impact others around you. Trust that as you're faithful, you'll experience God personally.